my name is Anna, I'm part of the team at KXC and you might be thinking, hey Anna, those are jazzy trousers and you wouldn't be the first person that's commented on them because they've kind of split opinions. Some people love them, um, other people love to mock them. My sister said to me, um, Anna, the Fresh Prince of Belair has called and he wants his trousers back. And you know what I say to you, Will Smith, now you can't have your trousers back because they are far too joyful in colour and I love an elasticated trowel. Anyway, we are continuing our series on the face of God and we're going to be looking at the second half of the story that John looked about at last week. And it's a story where Jesus comes into the temple and he tips over the table. It's very dramatic. In my head, it's kind of all done in slow motion. There's um, doves flying off. There's feathers falling. There's people kind of looking shocked and horrified faces. But it's a story that has been stirring in me over the last month or so. And the reason it's been stirring in me is because in it I can see the self-control and the anger of God hand in hand. And I've put them together because, first of all, anger without self-control is destructive. Anger, anger can be a powerful emotion and we've all seen and experienced the destructive nature it can have. However, anger does not always have to have negative consequences. It can actually express a groaning and a longing for change, that things can be different. And when it's expressed like that, it can be a beautiful and a powerful force for change. Secondly, um, self-control without anger is passive. I've heard people use self-control as a weapon to silence people. Don't be emotional, don't be angry. Well, if that was the case, if self-control was about never showing anger or emotion, then why do we see it in Jesus? Why the most self-controlled person that has ever walked the face of this planet? Why do we see anger and emotion in him? I believe self-control and anger are not opposed to one another, rather they belong together. We might even call them friends. Anyway, um, let's turn to Mark um, chapter 11 verse 12 and let's read it together. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving the, those out who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations and you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter rem remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Okay, let's start with the anger of God. The idea of the anger of God might feel like a bit of an uncomfortable shift for this series. We've talked so much about the love of God. But one of the things I notice about the anger of God is it is self-controlled, it's purposeful, and ultimately it leads to life. And I actually think that an angry God is good news to us. It is good news that God is not passive towards injustice, suffering, and pain in this world. If he was passive towards it, then it wouldn't make him very loving. He is quite the opposite to passive. In fact, he very much has skin in the game. God chose in Jesus to be with us, to be one of us, to encounter, to stand alongside those who are oppressed. In fact, to be one of those people who was oppressed. At the cross, he endured suffering and pain and the injustice 
at the cross in his death. But then he rose again and he pointed to a time when actually all of that would be gone, when all every tear would be wiped from our eyes, then all things would be made new, all things would be restored. And he calls us as his followers to bring in this moment that reality into, uh, into existence now that people might taste the kingdom of God, which is a place of restoration and healing. But despite that being our story, but despite God having so much skin in the game, so many people think that God is passive. They ask the question, if God, if God existed, then why does he not care about the pain of this world? And perhaps I think the reason that um, people think that God is passive is because we haven't engaged. His people who represent us haven't engaged with his anger. We haven't represented him and shown the world that he cares. Because it was us he put on this earth to represent him as his image and his likeness. And if you're tuning in today and you feel anger at injustice, you feel anger and rage at racism, then I want to tell you that God feels it with you. I want to actually tell you that God actually feels it more than you. Because God, many of us um, only just learned the name of George Floyd about a month ago, but God knew George Floyd's, Floyd's name when he was knitting him together in his mother's womb. I can tell you now that God does not feel passive towards his death. And I think there are two invitations here. First of all, there's an invitation to let God turn over the tables of our hearts. And also there's an invitation in joining God in turning some tables over. The first one, I think this is um, more than just a hangry moment from Jesus. He's more than just feeling a bit hungry and getting upset that he had, there wasn't any fruit at the tree when he went there. But this bizarre incident with the fig tree is actually really crucially important. It tells us why Jesus gets angry. He hates that his father is being misrepresented by Israel. In Jeremiah and Micah, there's imagery used of um, Israel as a fig tree, and it's spoken of at a moment where God judges Israel for not representing him. The people who carry his name, who are meant to bear his image and likeness, they have not represented him. So when Jesus walks into Jerusalem and he curses that fig tree, it's like ding, 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 ding. This is the moment that Jesus is saying, your time is up. I'm fed up of you. I've had enough of you misrepresenting my father. You're meant to be showing the world his face and you aren't. And I just find it so interesting that the Jesus, first of all, takes his anger towards the religious that it isn't the, the Roman tables that he's flipping over, but the Jewish, his own people. And I feel like this is a moment for us to invite the Holy Spirit to come over and disrupt and flip over the tables of our hearts and our church, which means inviting him in and asking him to disrupt the areas where we do not represent him. And the reason we do that is because we believe that his anger leads to life. His anger leads to healing. His anger will always lead to healing. His anger is only directed at those behaviours that hurt and um, hurt ourselves and hurt other people. And he wants to disrupt them so he can bring about a new order. There's a proverb that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And I believe the act of his, um, his anger is an act of faithful friendship towards us. Turning the tables of my heart will look like him getting into the parts of me which do not represent him, where I'm currently hurting myself and others. And I want him to come and disrupt that. But this story is more than just introspection. I think Jesus would like us to help him turn over the tables where things aren't being, where, where people aren't representing him. And the next invitation is to engage in his anger. And there's two things I just want to um, touch on and suggest that um, where God's anger might be different to our anger. First of all, his anger is expansive. 
So often we actually only, if we're honest, we only get angry at the things that directly affect us. The number of times I've heard people say that they don't care about care for creation because they only care about the issues of justice that affect humans. Well, um, here's a newsflash for you. Uh, climate change does affect humans. We are part of creation. We are very much dependent on our world. And yes, climate change is affecting human beings, but it's affecting the poorest of the poor, those people who are invisible to us. When we engage with his anger, he will take us beyond ourselves. The second thing is his anger is enduring. When the buzz around racism fades from our social media and our news platforms, do you know there's someone who's going to still care about racism and it's God? if we seek to represent him, then we will still care about it. And it's been one of the things. In the last few weeks, which I've spent most of my time repenting over. Where over the years, I've allowed my heart to grow numb. And if you're worried about being that person who cares only for a moment and then stops, and lets it fall off your radar there, and I encourage you to get involved in the spiritual disciplines. Do you know why the spiritual disciplines aren't just about being with Jesus, it's about becoming like him and doing what he did. It's about building a scaffolding in our lives where the things that we practice aren't just about loving our neighbour become so part and ingrained in our lives. When we engage in his anger, we will not remain numb. Ugh. A very wise person, um, a monk in fact, so he has to be wise, <clears throat> in April described lockdown as a time of rooting ourselves again. We've acted like we hover over the earth, like we hover over the world, and what we're beginning to do is start to get in touch and feel the earth beneath our feet again. And as we feel the earth beneath our, our feet again, we get in touch with our communities, our streets, our country and our world. And when we get enough, in touch enough with it to get in touch with the pain. And as we get in touch with that pain, I encourage you to also get in touch with how the Father feels about it. This is a moment for us to take ownership of our world again, to stop abdicating the authority that Jesus gave us and prayerfully and practically contend for change in our world, the change that our Father longs for. That is a beautiful expression of anger. So let's talk about self-control. Um, anger is an emotion that um, is quite scary, I think, for good reasons. When we feel that power like kind of surge through us, it can make us feel a bit unnerved. Mine actually kind of looks more like a stroppy teenager when I'm angry. But it is a bit alarming when I feel like I'm losing control of my emotions. And I really believe that when we see Jesus get angry here, what we don't see is, is his self-control slipping. But neither does his self-control repress the emotions, but rather it's a controlled channel of them. And we can only fully appreciate how controlled Jesus is in this moment when we understand how much is pressing in on him in this moment. Someone once taught me one of the best ways to understand and to kind of read the gospel of Mark is to think of it like a drama, that we are the audience and we're watching this drama unfold on the stage. And um, when you're in the audience, what you can see is things that the, the characters on the stage can't see. You, are, you kind of see the broader dynamics and you're privy to information that they don't yet know. And in this kind of drama, what we have is Jesus at the centre. Mark chapter 11 is kind of a moment where 
the cross is imminent and the emotions in Jerusalem are at fever pitch and Jesus is in the middle of it all. And on his left, on his right, you've got these different groups. You've got the disciples on one side. And we know that they are excited by the momentum that their Jesus movement seems to have. They are salivating and longing for desire for revolution against Rome. But the gospel writers have made it crystal clear to us that they are expecting Jesus to do things that aren't in line with his mission. They are putting false expectations on him. And then on the other side, you have the religious authorities. And they are terrified by Jesus because he is a threat to their power. And what we've seen in the Gospels is kind of this growing suspicion of Jesus from them. And we can see them starting to lay the tracks because they want to capture and kill him. And all of this is happening in a political pressure cooker because Israel is under oppression. The Roman Empire are kind of breathing down their necks. It's an oppressive regime that has the power to crush any uprising. And then there's the crowd, the fickle crowd. And we as the audience, we know that where they put their voice is going to be key to the drama. Are they going to put their voice behind the Jesus movement? Or are they going to put their voice behind the religious authorities? Or are they going to stay silent out of fear of Rome? And Jesus, in the middle of all of that, he recognises the expectations of the disciples, but he doesn't give in to them. He sees the manipulation of the religious authorities, but he refuses to play their games. He feels the weight of Rome, but he refuses to bow down to fear. And remarkably, he doesn't people please the crowd to gain their allegiance. The way Jesus conducts himself in this seriously high-pressured situation is extraordinary. He stays the Father's course. No one else is but the Father's course. He doesn't pick a fight with the Romans like the disciples wanted him to. And he doesn't flatter the crowd or the religious authorities. I believe that... As we grow in self-control, we too will be able to sift our motives and recognise the pull that other peoples have on us too. Self-control enables us to walk in a way where we can recognise and refuse our agendas and the agendas of others so we can fully be present and we can fully represent the Father. Self-control comes not from pushing things down but rather opening ourselves up opening ourselves up to the spirit, taking, the spirit uh, taking time to let the spirit examine our hearts and our motives. And Jesus was so good at that. He was attuned to the father's voice. We see it time and time again. And the evidence of that is that he doesn't allow the agendas of other people to pull him about. And I encourage you, if you want to be someone who, who channels the anger of God in a way that sees change, regularly open yourself up to the spirit of God. Examine your motive, examine your hearts. The spiritual disciplines are crucial to living a life of activism. Your prayer life is as essential as food and water. It's far from passive to open yourself up to the spirit of God of justice, whose anger is more expressive, expansive and enduring and healing than ours. So find ways to open yourself up to the spirit of God. Now, I could give you lots of ideas. I could say, go and look at the website, go and do our rule of life, listen to some pattern podcasts. But this one I want to recommend to you, um, I was going to say silence on solitude, but I think I'd get some angry emails from parents. But one thing I want to recommend um, is 
uh, the examine. It's a really simple way of just allowing the, the spirit to examine our lives. I've started it in lockdown. I found it so, so helpful. I put my phone outside my room. I go and start and I clean my teeth and I just run through my day. We've also got a pattern podcast on that so it can explain kind of how it works and how you can do it. But I really encourage you to do that. Find ways to open the spirit, open yourself up to the spirit, to let the spirit read you to let the scriptures read you, that we could channel the heart of the Father.